From Green Biz Group, welcome to Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. I'm Joel McCower. We don't start by looking at all these companies and saying, which one should we go after? We start with what the problem is, whether it's deforestation or species loss or carbon emissions or whatever it is. And we do lots of analysis to figure out what's driving that problem. Andy Leonard is executive director of Greenpeace USA. She spoke with me at the Green Biz Conference in Phoenix, Arizona in February 2017 about her organization's path forward in the age of Donald Trump how Greenpeace both partners with and protests companies, and what a company should do when Greenpeace calls. Let's listen in. So it's so good to have you here, Annie. And I guess my first question, just to kick things off, is how's it going? I mean, do just you know, we, I mean, you know, we talked about uh, what what the, the business community's plans are, and it's kind of business as usual. Is it business as usual for Greenpeace? Well, first I'll tell you, I was just in Washington, D.C., and I <clears throat> excuse me, I asked somebody, how are you? And they said, we don't ask each other that anymore um, because it leads to either despair or lying. And so instead, what we say is nice to see you. <laughs> nice to see you. Um, yeah, things are, things are both the same and things are really different. Things are the same because um, the, the window to solve our climate issue is shrinking. You know, an election does not change the science. An election does not change the markets. You know, the, the transition to renewable energy has enormous momentum. There's some things that we have to absolutely stay the course on. But then there's a whole new set of things that got added to our plate that wasn't on our plates before, both for environmental advocates and I hope for all of you. There are things in our country that we just took for granted, like um, scientists can share information that they get about their research and that decisions will be informed by science, that there is a um, societal agreement that we need a free and independent media, that we need an independent judiciary, um, that there is a value to having diverse multicultural communities. A lot of these things that sort of I thought were done are, are under threat right now. And so in addition to all the work that we have to do to get toxics out of our supply chain and to keep oil in the ground, we also now have to stretch and step up more as engaged citizens beyond our immediate sphere of activity. We need to pay attention to justice. We need to pay attention to democracy. We need to pay attention to the right for civil society to protest because everything now, everything that we care about is now under threat. So sorry that everybody has to be busier, busier in the next one to four years than we were even previously. In, in many ways, I think the sort of the, the modern environmental movement's 40 to 50 years, 40 to 50 years old. In many ways, I feel like it was all practice for this moment. We need to be more courageous, more systemic, um, more bold than ever before. So as in addition to being systemic and, and bold, One of the bold things that Greenpeace is famous for is some um, uh, visible uh, protests, and I think there are more than a few companies in this room that have been the customers of some of those protests. Um, but I, I couldn't help but, uh, but want to bring up this thing that happened just, I think, a few days after the inauguration. Um, tell us a little bit about what's going on here and what, you, what is that Greenpeace- Is there? Where is it? Do they see it? Right Do they see it? Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> Um, 
there was many reasons that we did this banner. Um, one of the climbers that was up 300 feet in the air on that rig, she said this is a hand-painted love letter to the movement. And I thought that was really beautiful. Um, what we usually do um, an intervention like this on a specific issue, stop buying palm oil, switch to renewable energy, keep it in the ground. But in this case, we felt like, as I was saying, everything that we care about is under assault, that our core values of what it means to be American, that our understanding and embrace of science, these, these things that we hold so dear and that have made our country better, environmental and social progress during my whole lifetime is under threat. And so we felt we needed a unifying message and to reflect that message back to the society where it was coming from. I mean, the word of the day is resist. You are hearing it everywhere. Meet up which has always been um, politically neutral, for the first time ever decided to have their own political meetups, and they did a hashtag resist meetup. In a week, 5,000 meetup resist groups got together. People are feeling like we need to cross barriers of issue, of demography, of, of everything to come together and resist this onslaught on all the things that we hold dear in this country. So that's why we did that. Plus, he had just um, resurrected Keystone XL the day before. Yeah, I think that's going to become an iconic uh, photograph for, for, at least for a lot of people. Greenpeace has historically been uh, sort of iconically good cop, bad cop, although I think more people probably, if they had to pick one or the other, would sort of look at the bad cop uh, side of that, uh, and, and, and I'll to say courageously uh, bad cop, uh, going back to uh, uh, nuclear testing in the 70s, whales in the 80s, um, Brent Spar in, in, in oil in, in Nigeria in the 90s, more recently the kayaktivists, the Arctic drilling. I mean, those have been uh, big uh, seminal protests that have really put a mark on the environmental movement. So I think, first of all, back to my original question, where does this go right now? And, and then I want to talk a little bit about how that works with the private sector. But what are you thinking now in terms of beyond uh, the banner above or near the White House, how, what do you see as the sort of catalytic protest, or is it is protest enough, or what, what are you thinking? Um, protest is, is necessary and insufficient. We have to protest, absolutely for sure. That gets people to the table. It shifts the goalposts of the discourse. It's absolutely a crucial tool within our um, democracy. And if you look at major changes in our country throughout history, protest has been involved in, I think, every single one. If you can think of one that didn't have protest involved in some way, let me know. But it's a really valuable tool we have in our citizen toolbox, and it's not enough. But um, the great thing about Greenpeace is that we are really good at collaboration and we are really good at confrontation. And it's really up to you which, which menu you want on the item. I mean, we, we can do either one. Um, we prefer collaboration. It's a lot easier to sit at a table and go through your supply chain and figure out solutions than it is to climb a crane and hang up 300 feet in the air for 16 hours, but we'll do whatever it takes, and we'll do both. And in addition to our own skills at either collaboration or confrontation, we also have our millions and millions of members around the world. And that's probably the most powerful tool that we have. Um, it allows us a huge political muscle in that we have millions of citizens and consumers around the world that are ready to act. We have that. It also allows us independence. 
because we are supported by individuals, we don't take money from any corporations or from any government, which means that we really can be led by the science. Um, so, so it's really up to you if you want to collaborate or, or if we want to escalate to confrontation, but we always start with collaboration first. It's, it's easier and quicker for both of us. We'd much prefer to be sitting on a table than hanging on a crane, but we will have no hesitation to do either. So what, one your of choice. The, one of the things that struck me, uh, and I've, I've told you this, um, is that when I hear about a lot of the things that companies do, some of the, the, the big uh, significant commitments that they make, uh, and I ask them, what's driving this? Often, I don't know the percentage, but often it comes down to one of two things, Walmart and Greenpeace. Uh, so I want to talk, explore a little bit about how you engage with companies, and I think a lot of companies, you know, there is that of that, and, and, and by the way, some of those people, you know, will publicly, at least in their jobs, be adversaries, but privately they're saying, thank you, Greenpeace, you made, I've been trying to get this through the C-suite for a long time, and now we've got their attention, thanks to what you, you know, said or did or hung from our building or spray painted on our roof or whatever. No, no, we don't spray paint. Oh, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> lovingly embedded we're, we're with flowers on the protesters. roof. I don't know, whatever you do. Um, how, do company, how should companies think about engaging with others? What, first of all, basically, what, what do you do when Greenpeace calls? Well, it sounds cliche, but you pick up the phone and talk to us. I mean, we don't bite. We have a lot of information. We um, have amazing research departments and science. A um, couple of things to keep in mind. One is to realize that it's not actually about you. It's about the scientific problem that we're trying to solve. I mean, we don't start by looking at all these companies and saying, which one should we go after? We start with what the problem is, whether it's deforestation or species loss or carbon emissions or whatever it is. And we do lots of analysis to figure out what's driving that problem. Where are the lever points in what's driving it? And that's what gets us to you. So there's a mythology that we sort of pick a big company because it's great publicity and go after them. We have a long journey before we get to you. Phil, Phil Radford, your, your predecessor said, you take about 18 months to design a campaign in terms of doing the research and understanding the various moving parts. Yeah, we, we really are into our research and really understanding this. When we do come to you, also realize that not everybody in here, but almost everybody in here, we actually want you to exist. We want your company to function. Um, we want a thriving, healthy environment, but we also want a thriving, healthy economy. And so us calling you and sharing our information is actually like free consulting. I mean, one thing you can definitely know when we call is we're not going to ask you for money. So you might as well listen to us and hear what we have but, to say. But, but, but Annie, I mean... I get it, and that's, that's, a, that's a, it's a great selling point, but I think just naturally there are companies that, that don't want to let you into the tent. It's just the, the minute that you are, you know, obviously to do consulting, they've got to open, open the tent in some ways, and, and that's scary, and so I don't know that there's a big appetite for that. Even though, even though the people that, you know, in this room who may be the one that you're engaging with may be all for it, that's a tough sell internally. Well, I'll tell you um, another thing to know when we call is that we don't go away easily. If you don't pick up the phone, we're not going to leave. <laughs> I mean, you know, th this is what we do. This is our absolute passion. Um, it's not just a job. We could all be making more money and be more comfortable doing something else, but we're doing this because we deeply, deeply care. So we're not going to go away. That's one thing. The other thing to know is that the thing which just infuriates us and our members more than anything else is lack of transparency. 
And today, with um, the internet and the sort of instant gratification of information that people have access to, more than ever before, the public demands transparency. So it's harder to hide, and it's stupider to hide. You might as well just bring us in, and let's have a conversation. One, one more thing to don't do is don't pay a ton of money to some loser consultant who will tell you to just wait us out because we're not going to go away. And don't send some like you know sustainability intern or PR slack or lawyer. We want to actually talk with someone who has the ability to make change in the company. Um, like we're, we're actually serious about making change. We can't just be tossed a bone and have us leave. All right, all you, uh, all you consultants and, uh, and communications people. <laughs> Uh, got your work cut out for you. One of the things you hear a lot uh, from the activist community and from the public, uh, even, even the, the progressive young people, you know, is that any time a big company does anything proactive and talks about it, it's seen as greenwash. I'm wondering how you view that. Do you see, first of all, a lot of greenwash out there? Um. I see less blatant greenwash than I did, you know, in the 1980s before transparency was the new expectation and norm. It was easier to fool people back then. I think the public is wiser and I think all of you guys are wiser. I also think um, that the corporate commitment to sustainability really has increased enormously. So I think companies themselves, a lot of them just don't want to do um, greenwash. When a company says they've done something right, First of all, companies are not homogenous, just like environmentalists are not homogenous. Um, so a couple of things. One is authenticity and transparency really matters. If you go out there you know, saying, celebrate us, look how wonderful we are, that's inviting critique. If you go out there and are really authentic and say, here's the problem, here's part of the solution, we still have these other problems that exist, anyone have ideas about what to do about it? If you just are authentic about it, that will help a lot. The other thing is that when we encourage you to be better, don't think of it as critique. Think of it as love. I was actually thinking about this with my um, teenage daughter, who is taking AP physics right now, which is really, really hard. And the teacher said he designs the exams so that it is virtually impossible to get to 100%, which is kind of like sustainability, right? And I was thinking she recently went from a 70% on her test to an 80% on her test, and she showed me this. Should I say to her, great, you can stop? Or should I say, excellent, let's go for 90? And I said, let's go for 90 because I love her. And that's where most of you guys, that's how we feel about you, is that it is because we want you to do well that we say, good first step, let's do the next thing. This has been a Valentine's Day message from Greenpeace. <laughs> <laughs> it might not feel like love, but it is. You've been, I, I see you as one of the great storytellers out there, your story of stuff, video series, uh, really, I mean, I don't know how many, you probably know how many millions of, of viewers, how many? 50 million now. 50 million viewers, and it, it's really uh, an achievement. It's an achievement in storytelling. I mean, you know, some people think it's a little hard-hitting, a little simplistic in terms of, you know, it's all, it's, but because it's, it's obviously when you get into this, it's all nuanced and, and, and really, really hard to do. But you made some very clear points. And it, what have you learned about storytelling that, that companies might benefit from through that process? Um, one thing I learned is that there's a difference between dumbing down and distilling. And if you try to dumb down your message, people know, and they don't, they don't want to be talked to in that way. 
Um, but if you can distill your message to simplify it, whereas you're still respecting the intelligence of the audience, it's much better received. Another thing that I learned is really about the value of storytelling. Actually, I'll tell you the, the story of the story of stuff. It was a fascinating experience for me um, when I developed this talk. I was in a leadership training program, which was an incredible opportunity. There were 20 very, very experienced change agents. And it, we met over a year, four times over the year. And one of the exercises that we had was to stand in front of the group and to explain what our purpose in life is. And my purpose in life is to bring about a paradigm shift in how we relate to materials. And so I was like, this is awesome. I'm going to recruit all of these 20 people to work with me because my issue is the most important and most exciting there is. So I stood in front of this group and I gave my most intellectually advanced talk about systems of production and consumption and carbon sequestration and endocrine disrupting chemicals and parts per million. And, and I did my most advanced and I thought I'm going to show them how smart I am so they'll want to work with me. And then when I was done, the group was supposed to give us authentic feedback. And I was so proud. I mean, I'd been saying this for basically 20 years, so I sort of had it down. I will never forget that um, one of the people in the room who was really smart raised his hand and he said, I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? I said, we use too much materials. We use, too, we use um, too toxic materials. What's not to understand? And he said, what's a material? He said, I work on democracy. That has nothing to do with materials. I said, what do you mean? Democracy has everything to do with materials. Who do you think is deciding what materials we use? And he said, what is a material? And I said, it's what you're holding. It's what you're sitting on. And I will never forget, he, he looks down and he said, no, Annie, I'm sitting in a chair. And I said, oh, is that what your brain does when it sees that is says chair? And everybody said, yes. And they asked what my brain is. I said, my brain, it's like it's wood, it's mahogany, is it teak, is it from Penang, were the people kicked out for that? It's PVC, it's leaking phthalates, it's endocrine disrupting chemicals, it wasn't designed for the environment. And they were like, whoa, Annie. <laughs> they said, you need to learn how to talk about this in a different way. And they told me some really key advice. They said that all my big words and jargon that I thought was serving to impress them was actually serving to exclude them and disempower them from being part of the conversation. They said, if you want people to join you in conversation, use words they use. They also said that I was totally in my head. They said, lower the center of gravity and include your heart. And I was like, I'm a scientist, heart is for fluffy stuff, you know, don't you want facts, facts, facts? But I took them up on their challenge. They said, they said you have to remember, the people in this room didn't spend the last 20 years sneaking into factories in Pakistan to see what was happening with the plastic there. They were doing something else. So they said, start at the beginning. And it was because of this advice that I reworked my talk to make the story of stuff. And lo and behold, people were ready to listen. So that was one of the biggest lessons that I had in communication. Yeah. 50 million of them. That's a great story. Let's, let's get a question in before we have to go. Um, yeah, so we have a question about uh, your background related to when you were arrested for protesting a business that was dumping waste into a black South African community under apartheid. So what's the relationship between diversity and the environment? Uh, okay, so first of all, just bringing in the diversity and environment piece of the environmental movement, uh, whether it's corporate or NGO, but talk about your piece of that. So I only heard the last part about um, the uh, 
relationship between diversity and environment. I mean, it's, at this point, it's just so glaringly obvious that I hope it's not news to anybody that some people are disproportionately impacted by environmental harm. And those tend to be communities of color, low-income communities, women, whether it's in the, in the United States and rich countries or globally. I spent um, 10 years working for Greenpeace from the mid-80s to the mid-90s fighting against the export of hazardous waste from rich countries to poor countries. And that's where I really saw firsthand that environmental ills often follow the path of least resistance. So we cannot understand environmental problems and we cannot build a movement strong enough to solve environmental problems unless we also have a social and racial justice analysis in this. If we do not, we end up with sort of a resource apartheid where wealthy white people get organic everything and get to drive electric cars and live in solar paneled houses and huge numbers of people are left with sort of the toxic discards of our society. So if we want to solve environmental um, solution problems, which I know that we do, we have to also include social equity and racial equity in our work to do that. Well, sort of towards that inclusiveness goal, you've described yourself, at least to me, as a, a soccer mom. <laughs> and, um, you know, probably not the first descriptor that people would have of you, but, you know, uh, Point taken, you have a daughter and you you uh, single mom and you've been raising this daughter and, and I guess you, you have a, a sort of a sense of the zeitgeist and you travel all over the country and around the world. How do we bring the soccer moms into this more effectively of every race uh, and, and, and uh, income level? How do we appeal more to soccer moms? I mean, the, the conventional wisdom is it's about health, it's about kids. Uh, and that's you know probably true to some extent, but I bet you have a more nuanced view of that. I do. Um, I think one of the most important things is to shift the onus of responsibility away from that soccer mom to the producers and distributors of these products. Is that I'm a single mom, I'm busy, I gotta grocery shop, I gotta work, I gotta commute, I gotta walk the dog, all this stuff. I shouldn't also have to add onto my list making sure there are no neurotoxins in my daughter's shampoo. That shouldn't be my responsibility. That should be the manufacturers of the shampoos and the distribution. So we should do choice editing by removing the unhealthy, removing the unsustainable products from the menu rather than say, well, it's up to the consumer to make the right choice. It, it just shouldn't have to be a parent's job to protect their child from disrupting chemicals or neurotoxins in their pajamas or mattress or, or shampoo. So it's, it's not our responsibilities as individuals. It's all of your responsibilities as businesses to make sure the only items on the menu are those that are sustainable and fair and just. Well, Annie, I could keep, could keep this conversation going for, for another 20 minutes, but we've got to... Uh, Bring. We've got a lot of, lot of, lot more people to come out here, and uh, but I just want to thank you for the the voice that you bring to the to this party. Uh, it's such an important voice uh, in keeping us both inspired and you know, a little bit afraid, a little bit on our toes, um, and I, it is really a critical role. Um, so thank you for that. Please join me in thanking Annie Leonard. Thank you. You've been listening to Annie Leonard, Executive Director of Greenpeace USA, in conversation at the GreenBiz17 conference. For more Center Stage podcasts, go to greenbiz.com slash centerstage. And while you're there, tune into GreenBiz350, our weekly podcast covering the news 
and the people behind the news in sustainable business and clean technology. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>